Hello, everybody. My name is Daniel Prince, and I am the host of the Once Bitten podcast. This is a podcast focused on Bitcoin. It's my mission to interview as many people as I can around the different aspects of Bitcoin and help people understand exactly what Bitcoin could mean for them and for their families and for their future. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for listening. Hey guys, welcome to today's show. Uh, I think you're really going to enjoy this one. It's uh, very on point at the moment with uh, the topic of homeschooling. And I think you're really going to um, enjoy what Isaac has to say. So uh, I hope you uh, sit back, enjoy, open a beer, whatever you're doing, glass of wine, and um, and get ready to uh, yeah dive down a, a new rabbit hole. Uh, I want to give a quick shout out as usual to Real Vision, $1, 30-day trial. Go check it out and go and get as much content as you can. And I also want to proceed this one with um, a great chance for you to get way more information on homeschooling. This was part of a project I put together last year. It's called um, Homeschooling Global Summit. Go to hgsummit.com forward slash hgs. 2019. Go there now, get your free premium pass, and that will unlock all of the content that we put together last year. And we even had Sir Ken Robinson on there, and uh, Jerry Mintz, Pat Ferenga, and uh, Peter Gray, who uh, Isaac talks about uh, in this interview. So definitely go check that out after this. And um, yeah, enjoy the show. Thank you for listening. Welcome to today's guest, uh, Isaac Morehouse. And I reached out to Isaac because um, he was part of uh, the homeschooling summit that I was part of the team putting together last year, and he kindly gave up his time. And I really want to ask Isaac about the companies that he's been building and his experience with homeschooling. And guess what? He's also a Bitcoiner. So that's, uh, that's a nice little bonus. Isaac, welcome to the show. Thank you for your time. Hey Daniel, thanks so much for having me, man. It's uh, it's it's exciting stuff to see all these all these interests that I have intersecting here with uh, with Bitcoin and homeschooling and freedom more broadly. So yeah, exactly. And that's like you know, I, I think one thing I've been trying to push is like the the idea of Bitcoin being separation of money from state and homeschooling being um, a separation of education from state. Uh, having been a homeschooler and a world schooler uh, myself with my own four kids, I, I see the overlap. Uh, but before, there was just a very small niche of people that were interested in it, uh, homeschooling or world schooling, or even questioning the education system. Now, I think we're about one and a half billion people are forced into it and have many questions and have time to sit back and you know ponder what is the education system? Is it right for my kids? Is it right for our family? Is it right for our situation? Do we? What are our choices? Is there an alternative? Uh, so I'd love to get into that with you uh, because you've actually built two companies around alternative choices. Um, but could you just give uh, the listeners a little background about yourself, um, y- your own family, and how and why perhaps you decided to, uh, to start homeschooling in the first place? Yeah, so I, I grew up uh, homeschooled myself. My, my parents, uh, I have two siblings. I'm the youngest of three. My parents had decided that they wanted to homeschool us. And it was kind of for two reasons. They were very religious Christian and they wanted to, you know, teach the the beliefs that they had, but it was also academic. They just didn't think that the school system was, <laughs> was that good at uh, teaching people. 
And so they had made that choice. Um, and when I was three, my dad was in a, a car accident and suffered a, a closed head injury. He was, he was in a coma for several months. He ended up coming out of it, coming home, but he was in a wheelchair, requires to this day, 24 seven care, has no short term memory, can't walk as you know, somebody that has to be cared for. And my mom, despite that, having to take care of him and three kids, she continued with homeschooling. She homeschooled us. And one of the one of the outcomes of that, one of the results of having my dad, you know, sort of not be able to, to be there to, to help with that. My mom is much more of a like, you know, big optimistic dreamer, but not very organized uh, and, and uh, unrealistic about the things that she wants to do. Whereas my dad was more organized and things. And so without him in the picture, what started as homeschooling and what my mom intended to be a very structured, almost classical, you know, like she always felt guilty, like we should be learning Greek and Latin and do, you know, all these things that you read about these other homeschoolers doing, especially back then in the 80s. Um, it ended up being unschooling, more or less. I mean, there wasn't a word for it back then, but it was like by default because, you know, we had a lot of chores to do. So we always did a lot of household chores because it just needed to. Um, but we're very independent um, and just, you know, like sneak off and play Legos when my mom would get a phone call. She was very social. So she was always on the phone talking to friends and whatever. And we had a, we had a lot of homeschool friends and quite a network around. So um, we had a lot of social activity and we had a lot of chores. But in terms of academic work, it was like it was like as little as we could get away with we would do. And, I, you know, my mom always felt bad about that. And I always wondered, like at the time, like, am I stupid? Am I not learning things that I need to learn? I don't know. But, you know, I just, I just want to play baseball and have fun. So I'll just ignore it. Um, in retrospect now, knowing everything that I've learned and having my own kids and, and all of that, um, I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful for that. And, uh, you know, it turns out when I was uh, 14, I went to a, a private school. My, my siblings were out of the house. And a lot of my friends were, were going to this private school for the basketball team primarily. And so I was at that age where I wanted more socialization. So I go to the school, and that was the first time I had no idea, like, how am I going to stack up? I've never done, like, really – I took in, taken homeschool classes and things, but I, I hadn't done – you know, I didn't know what a normal 14-year-old is supposed to know and whatnot. So I took the entrance thing, and they are like, well, if you wanted to, you could start as a junior, uh, but your age is like a freshman. And I'm like, well, I'll split the difference. I'll start as a sophomore. And I went, and I did just fine. Like, academically, it was fine. And I'm not any kind of genius. Um, I think what I realized is that work ethic is actually, like – Really, if you want to, if you want to just succeed in the schooling system, as long as you're not lazy and you're willing to do all the busy work, that's all you really need. It's not really, <laughs> it's not really about like truly having some deep insight or grasping most of the topics. But um, and then I, I, after one year there, I wanted more autonomy. I wanted to be able to work more and make money, which I was accustomed to. I thought it was kind of silly that everybody was taking classes on this exact same pace, even though some kids were way ahead and some were way behind and. You know, I enjoyed it. I played sports. I had fun, but I wanted I wanted more freedom. And so I went to community college um, for my last two years of high school uh, and did all of my classes there while while working, you know, three days a week. I took classes there two days a week. I remember my mom used to have to drive me to community college the first part of the first semester because I didn't have my license yet. <laughs> um, and then I transferred those credits to a four-year generic state university uh, in, in Kalamazoo, Michigan, where I'm from. And I, I got my bachelor's degree when I was 19 and, um, you know, kind of went on, went on my, my career path from there. And w without going into, you know, too much detail, what just one of the things I remember, and this, this later, 10 years later, led to the foundation of uh, me starting uh, practice, was I just remember having this moment at 
the university. And again, I was paying my way through school. I was not living on campus. I had, I was, you know, living off campus. I was being as frugal as possible. And I was taking like 20 credit hours all crammed into like two days a week. Sometimes some semesters would be three days a week. And then I'm working as many hours as I can other than that. And I go in and sit in these classes. Nobody wanted to be there. Like professors didn't want to be there. Students didn't want to be there. You know, like what other good do you pay for up front? And then everybody cheers when it's not delivered. Like when class is canceled, everyone's excited, right? And so I'm like, okay, well, what am I really buying? Because nobody seems to like the information component. Nobody seems to be here for the actual lectures and the learning. They're just like putting up with it. They're tolerating it. What are they buying? And what am I buying? Why do I feel like I need to go here? Why does everyone tell me that? And I remember one morning I'm sitting in class and these, these guys are like, you know, oh man, I got so wasted last night. Oh. And then we had like a trade and grade exercise and you got to trade. And, and I'm reading this, this chicken scratch that they had written. I'm like, this is just unbelievable. And I thought, I'm going to graduate from this place, but so are these guys. And we're both going to enter the job market and we're both going to have the same freaking thing on our resume that says, you know, I, <laughs> that says I went to Western Michigan University. And I thought what I'm really buying is basically a piece of paper that says, hey, on average, I'm no worse than anyone else who went to this school. And that was the first time it clicked, like the signaling theory of education. Like what you're really buying is a signal. This piece of paper is a signal to the job market. And that's when I thought, well, good Lord, that is a pretty weak signal given the cost. There's got to be a cheaper way to signal my value on the market much stronger than this. And it turns out there is because after my very first internship, no one ever asked about my education ever again. All that mattered was that I had a reputation from my previous jobs of doing good work. And that's when I realized, like, that signal is so weak. If you have anything better, you can just bypass that whole thing. And so that kind of planted the seed. I was very frustrated with that experience in college and wanted something different, but didn't really know what to do. So I spent the next decade working kind of in and around the world of, of libertarian nonprofits. I started uh, campus programs. Well, I worked in politics for a couple of years and realized how how utterly unattractive that was and how politicians are not uh, the leaders of change in the world. They're the followers. And so then I worked uh, for a couple of nonprofits doing student programs on campuses, programs helping people get their careers started. Um, I moved into fundraising for a nonprofit. And that was where it all finally came together. I had been working with students for years and especially after the 2008 crisis, hearing them talk about how there's no jobs, no one's hiring. I have all this debt and degrees. I can't get a job. And then I started doing fundraising for this nonprofit. I'm traveling around the world, talking with millionaires, occasionally billionaires, self-made entrepreneurs, and I'm soliciting donations for this sort of you know free market libertarian organization. And I would always ask them about their business. I'd say like, what, what's your greatest constraint to growth in your company? And I'm telling you without fail, every single one of them said talent. I can't find enough good people. And I thought, well, they're all claiming, they're like, and they're like, I don't care what the economy is doing. I'm always hiring if I find great people. And I thought, well, what is with all these college students saying there's no opportunity and all these business owners saying I can't, can't find anybody? So that's when I got the idea for Praxis, this, this you know, program where it's like, let's, let's give you a six-month boot camp to just get you up to speed on the most basic software tools you know, and basic understanding of how to create value in the workplace and then place you in an apprenticeship with a startup, with a company where you can learn on the job. Um, and I think we can do the whole thing for zero net cost because you can get paid during the apprenticeship and that can cover your tuition. And you can have one year, zero net cost. You come away with six months experience at a startup, portfolio of projects you've built. And like 96% of our, our grads have gotten hired full-time upon uh, 
exiting the program. So that was kind of the idea for that. And I launched that in 2013. Okay. I went way more into detail than you probably wanted. As you can tell, you're going to have to rein me in. I'm a, I'm a talker. <laughs> no way, man. No way. This is awesome. You've given me loads of things to work on here. Um, now I do want to come back to practice. I want to really focus on practice and crash your other company, because I think, um, it's going to really help people that are listening, um, with slightly older kids that are perhaps, um, worried. Um, and it, it is a huge worry. It's like a massive anxiety for parents right now that have yeah. got kids out of school because we've been so systemized, like just to the point of roboticized, really. There are many people probably listening to this thinking, my kids being out of school for two, you know, even two weeks, like would never have ever have imagined that in the past. You wouldn't take them out to go and travel for two weeks during school time. Now they could be out for two months. And we've been conditioned to think that having kids out of the education system is going to hurt their um, chances in the future. And you mentioned um, you mentioned a key word, guilt, um, when you were talking about uh, your mother when you were growing up. Um, could you perhaps help some of the listeners uh, with with this, this fear and this anxiety and this guilt that might be hanging over them that, um, you know, that their kids are not getting the, the best education that they thought they, um, should be. Yeah. It's, it's such a, it's such a powerful force as a parent, the, the fear that, you know, your kid's going to be stupid or behind or whatever. And, and I would say it's a, it's a mixture because you got to be very careful in separating the emotions as a parent. I've run into this many times. I have four kids. Um, part of it is just the absolute well-meaning, correct, you know, parents wanting to, they're the best for their kids. Part of it is parents being afraid of the opinions of other people and wanting not the best for their kids, but the normal and the accepted socially for their kids. And those two things are very hard to separate sometimes. I mean, just in a very small example, all parents have probably experienced, you know, you're out in public and somebody says, you know, you got your little kid with you and they're like, hi to your kid and your kid doesn't say anything. Well, what's your immediate reaction? Mine is almost always like, say hi, you know, say hi. And I'm like afraid that they're going to think my kid is rude. And it's like, if you step back and think about it, do I have a moral principle that all three-year-old children must say hi to a random stranger who approaches them? Well, no, I don't think that's like some moral thing. But why in that moment am I so prone to like make my kid, you know, sort of almost like shame them and try to force them to say hi? It's because I'm embarrassed. I don't want other people to think I have rude kids and I've raised bad kids or whatever. And so it's very, very hard, that combination of you want the best for your kids, but you also want other people to think you're a good parent. And that can be very, very dangerous. That's what, what kind of forces you to just do the normal thing, even if the normal thing is really bad for your kid and they're not, and it's, and it's harming them, you know, and they're sad and depressed and frustrated. As long as everybody else thinks you're normal, it can be easy to overlook that. So those are, those are dangerous things. So, you know, my, my main thing is like, relax, <laughs> your kids are going to be okay. Human beings are learning machines. That is what we do best. That is our most distinguishing feature from all other creatures is our, our insatiable appetite for learning, experimentation, adaptation. Like watch a, watch a kid before they go to school. Watch how they learn to walk, how they learn to talk, how they learn to, to, to do almost anything. They study, they observe the world around them. 
They experiment relentlessly. They keep trying to, you know, reach the ball on the shelf and then they figure out they can push something over and stand on top of it. Nobody instructed them that that's what they ought to do. Nobody said that the toy box can also be used as a stepping stool. They experiment, they innovate, they learn, and they want to know everything. And so if, if you left alone, kids are going to learn. If they're in an environment that they're not you know, shut off in some closet with, with no parts of the world to experience. If they're in an environment where there's any kind of, you know, resources, activity, anything going on, they will learn. Now the, the danger is imposed learning kind of kills that, that desire for learning. And it kind of trains and conditions kids to think that learning sucks and that it's not fun. If you randomly pick like a tiny slice of all the things you could know in the world and say, these are the seven subjects we're going to have you learn based on one textbook's interpretation of them. You know, it's like math, reading, whatever. And we're going to force you to do them in 50 minute increments, whether that timing works or not. And we're going to force you to, you know, go every day and do and. Now, all of a sudden, kids are conditioned to believe that learning is something I hate. Learning is something that's good for me, but I'll never do on my own if I'm not forced to. And it, and it almost kills it. So I say the more freedom, the better. Now, I'm going to give you a concrete story because I, I know how scary it can be. With my son, he's 15 now. When we first started, um, we were planning to homeschool him with a full curriculum and everything. And we had you know looked in all these different curricula and whatever. And, and he was like a pretty verbally and conceptually intelligent kid at a, at a young age, uh, lacks sort of physical and common sense, right? Like can't find his way, you know, home, can't tie his shoes, but like <laughs> philosophically a pretty smart kid. So we're like, Oh yeah, he's ready for, you know, learning to read and all this other stuff. And so we spent every day, my wife would spend hours trying to go through this curriculum. He was like six and he would just fight it. It was terrible. Like they were, you know, like, you, you don't want your time with your kids. It moves so fast. You don't want your time with your kids to be like painful. You don't want both parties to hate it. Like they're fighting all the time. They didn't like it. It was like torture for everyone. And it wasn't getting anywhere. And especially with reading, because I'm like, he's such a smart kid with a big vocabulary. He, he, he spoke at a very young age and it was always very, you know, loquacious. And like, I know that reading is going to unlock the world and we got to teach him to read. And he just would not learn. We tried all these different methods. He would hate it. He would hate trying. He never got it. And so finally, you know, I had started reading a lot more John Holt and Peter Gray and, you know, Daniel Greenberg and a lot of the sort of unschooling movement stuff. And philosophically, I had sort of been convinced that like, hey, we, we actually don't need to do this. And so we decided, all right, partially because I had been reading that, but partially because of just our daily experience, it just wasn't working. So fine, we're done. We're not going to try to teach him to read anymore. Okay, so like within a couple months, it, we used to we used to read. He used to always want us to read Calvin and Hobbes uh, comics to him at night. And one night he went to bed really late, and I was like, "Nah, it's too late. We're not going to read." And you know, you stayed up and watched the movie instead. He's like, "Oh, I want you to read to me." No, I'm not going to read it to you. So I walk out of the room, and then I'm walking by his door later, and I hear him in there reading Calvin and Hobbes to himself. And I'm like, <laughs> "I'm like, wait, what in the world? When did this happen?" Well, I asked him about it because then he would just start doing that every night. And he said, well, at first, you know, no one would read it to me that night. So I decided to do it myself and I didn't actually know how to read. I just had memorized almost every one of the, the panel, every one of the comics. And so I could look at the pictures and I know what it said. And so I'm reading it out loud. But then at some point within like, I don't know when it just turned into him being able to read. And the first thing he read was Kelvin and Hobbes, which is not like, you know, really easy level reading stuff. And that's when it hit me like, oh my gosh. We just left him alone. And what did he have? He had two things. 
He had access to the information, to books that he that he cared about, and he had incentive. He wanted to read that comic at night because he enjoyed it. And the only way to get what he wanted was to learn to read. And I've seen this with my other kids. They play online games with other kids, like uh, like Roblox and all these different things. And the only way that they can play the game is if they learn to spell and to read. And so they've taught themselves those things purely because they had a, a necessity for that. And that's what's so crazy about the world we live in. There is like massive upside and advantage to anyone who learns to read and like horrible downside if you don't. The incentives are baked in Everyone will learn to read. I'm telling you, there, there are all these amazing studies and, and stories of the, the Sudbury Valley School, which is like an unschool where they don't teach anything to anyone. They let the kids do whatever they want. And there are kids who have taught themselves to read at age four. And there are kids who haven't even attempted to read until age 12 or 13. Picked up books, learned to read really quickly. One of the kids who didn't learn until she was, I think, 12, she went on to win like a, like a, uh, I can't remember what prize it was. It was like a prize. She's an author now. She's a writer and she won like a writing prize. And, and there's all these studies that show like whether you learn to read when you're six or when you're 10, by age 12, your comprehension is the same. Like kids just, when they're interested, they'll go learn it. And when you're interested and motivated, you can learn things incredibly fast. I'll give you one more example. My son, not interested in math at all, never been interested in math. And so, you know, again, since age six, we haven't taught him any math. We haven't forced him to do any math. Last year, he, you know, turned 14 he wants more socialization. He's going to some homeschool classes, but he wants to be around kids his age instead of at home all the time. And so he decides he wants to go to this school. It's like a four day a week school. And uh, he wants to go there. He's got some friends going there. And he's like, but they're going to to go there. I'm going to have to take math at like the eighth grade level or whatever. Um, and otherwise I won't be able to go. So I don't care about math myself, but I care about it as a means to having the social life I want. So starting last summer, he got on Khan Academy just on his own. He literally started at kindergarten and he worked his way through. Uh, I think he's like, I think he's up to like sixth or seventh grade, like in like six months, he went through like a grade a month of math and just taught himself math because he had a reason to learn it now. Now he's not great at math. He doesn't love it, but he's going to be sufficient at it to do what he wants to do with it. And I think those things help me see firsthand that it's like, let your kids chase what they're interested in. And when they have a reason, they can learn incredibly fast. It's so true. It really is. But it's so difficult. It it's incredibly <laughs> difficult because you have to suffer things like in the meantime, you know, my my son's, you know, 10-year-old friends when he's 10 are like talking about what they're learning in school and math and he can like, you know, he doesn't know what a decimal is. You know, like there are moments that are like embarrassing. And then if if he says, hey, I'm embarrassed by that. I want to learn that stuff. Great cool. What do you want to know? Like we're there to help you. We're teach you. But the hard thing as a parent is just when your kids don't know the exact same stuff that other kids, their exact same age don't know, you feel this instant shame. And when you step back and think about it, that's like the stupidest thing ever. Like if I said, you know, I'm, I'm 36. If there's another 30, you know, if other 36 year olds know about a particular type of business that I don't, you know, engineering or whatever, do I feel shame? Like I need to know that? No. Cause we're all smart enough to know, like, that's just ridiculous. Why would you all need to know the exact same thing at the exact same age? It's totally based on interest, ability, and context. But somehow with kids, we've, we've put in this same age graded idea that like, oh, the only way to learn is if you all learn the exact same thing by the exact same time. And so we get this pressure and we feel so ashamed, but it's, it's really, really stupid. And you got to zoom out and do two things. Think about it theoretically and think about like that there's no, 
There's no sane principle about why that ought to be the case. And then think about it practically on the ground. Look at your kids. Look at the 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 suffering and the torment of just forcing them to learn stuff that is of no interest to them. They're going to end up hating it more and they're going to end up learning less and you're going to end up enjoying your time with them way less. It's like, what's the point of that? You know? So it's, it's a huge challenge, but I'm telling you, if you let go a little bit, <laughs> if you let go, it's not like they're going to become Einstein and like, Oh, I stopped teaching my kid. And suddenly he's like, you know, doing all this amazing stuff. No, no, they're going to do what they're going to do, but they're going to do it with a lot more joy and you're going to have a lot more enjoyment of them. It's so true. Everything you're saying, I've experienced myself with the judgment. You know, it's um, and you know, I, I think I don't know. May, I, maybe I'm just speaking from my own point of view, but um, you know, I found that it, it's easier for um, me to deal with the judgment than it would be perhaps for for my wife. And I I wonder whether that is like across the board. You know, is it easier for men to to let go and you know be a little bit um easier and think about, oh, it'll work out for the best in the, in the future. Um, and more difficult for the, um, the wife or the woman or the spouse to, to live, you know, let go of that, that judgment, because we've, we've been brought up in this society that is all judging, especially when it comes to education and parenting. Uh, you know, it's, it's a tough one. Do you have any thoughts on that? Or am I, am I speaking like crazy thoughts here? No, I, I can definitely just from, from my own experience, um, I think that's true. It's, it's definitely harder for my wife for, for a couple of reasons. I suspect one is she kind of pays the social price more frequently and more directly than I do. So when she's out there doing play dates with other kids or talking to other moms in the neighborhood, like all the moms in the neighborhood have a text thread, right? All the dads in the neighborhood don't. We're just like, Hey, what's up, Jim? Hey, what's up? You know, like, but we don't, we don't feel the need to be. And, and I think women have this, um, natural tendency to want to make sure they're protecting their kids. They want to be familiar with the broader environment. Who are the friends that they're playing with? And there's kind of a social network among women that's very much constantly checking in for like, are my kids with the right people? Are they safe? Are they what? And so they have a lot more kind of knowledge of what's going on with each other. And they talk about these things more and they talk about, you know, oh, you know, Janie is really good at this and, you know, so-and-so struggling with that. And so you're constantly kind of facing this assessment because I think mothers are, are constantly scanning their environment and assessing like what's a threat to my kid, what's good to my kid. And that can be a threat, you know, a social threat or whatever. And so feeling like you're being judged by other mothers perpetually that, oh yeah, they're the ones that don't teach their kids anything. Oh yeah, they're the ones who, you know, their kids are running around digging in the dirt instead of like being in school, like respectable children. Oh yeah, they're the kids that told my, you know, told my daughter she didn't know what, you know, two plus eight was or whatever. And you're like, you're facing that so much more directly and more frequently as a mother. I think it is, it is definitely, definitely challenging. You have to be, you have to be very confident in what you know ultimately matters for your kids and knowing that it's okay if other people disagree. And I want to give you one, one very poignant example that I, I, I've experienced. And I've experienced things like this way more than, than once, but this, this one sticks out to me. And this is with Praxis, which is, you know, most of the people that do Praxis are doing it as an alternative to college. And parents feel very similar about college as they do K through 12. Like, like no, you, you have to go. My kid has to go or they'll be a loser and that would be my fault. So like the ultimate success as a parent is you got your kid all the way into a good college and they graduated. Now you've done your job and everyone's going to say you did a good job as a parent. Whatever they do after that, is up to them, but you did your thing, right? And so there's this this real urge to, to do that, to be like, I was a good parent. I talked to this one parent, her son wanted to do Praxis. 
And she was super, super concerned. And she's like, hey, you know, he he's never really been into school. He's, you know, told, always been doing all these side projects and ignoring his homework and whatever. Has no interest in college. He graduated high school a year ago. Didn't want to go to college. Instead, he started this, you know, he's got a YouTube channel and a lawn mowing business. And he's trying to learn digital marketing. And like the kid had made like 30 grand in his lawn mowing business, had built up this YouTube channel, had taught himself to use like Final Cut Pro and all these different digital editing was learning how to use Facebook ads. I mean, I knew it because we had seen his practice application. He was amazing. And he wanted to go and work at a startup. And he was like happy, interesting kid. I'm so worried about him. He just, he won't go to college. She literally said, I just, he's so different. I wish he was more like my daughter. I said, well, tell me about your daughter. She said, well, my daughter was, you know, always very studious and got into a good school and, and graduated, you know, a year ago from, I don't remember what college. And I said, what's she doing now? Well, she hasn't been able to find a job and she's, she's living at home. Um, she doesn't really know what she wants to do. There's no one hiring for her thing. And, you know, she's kind of really frustrated about that. And she literally didn't see as she's telling me this, how wild and crazy this is, that the kid she's concerned about is the happy, curious entrepreneurial kid who's out there making money, starting businesses, teaching himself things. And the kid who's at home, unemployed and depressed with $50,000 of debt, that's the one she's proud of. And so you can get so you, you can start to measure your parenting and measure what you think is what, you know, happiness for your kids by what society praises. Because when you go to the cocktail party, oh, how's, you know, Jane? Oh, she graduated from college. Oh, I'm so proud. That's awesome. How's Jim? Well, he still refuses to go to college and he's getting bad grades. He's trying to do some lawn business. Oh, oh, I'm sorry about that. Right. And so you start to you start to conflate what other people praise with what's actually good for your kids. And if you zoom out and say, what's making my kid happy and fulfilled? It's not often the things that society tells you your kid needs to do to be a good kid. <laughs> yeah, it's nuts. And just to layer on top of that, you know, uh, a personal story myself, you know, I, I quit my career at age 37. You know, I'd worked from the age of 19 to 37 in uh, financial markets and I was done, man. I was over. I was finished. Uh, luckily, I'd avoided the burnout, the nervous breakdown, whatever else usually comes in, the, in that line of business. But I had four kids and I wasn't seeing them. So I was like, you know what? I'm done. I'd read the four hour work week by Tim Ferriss that turned my life upside down. It turned my thinking upside down. And my goal was spend more time with my family and my four kids. So that was that done. As soon as I quit and walked out of that that career, um, people started judging me then as like unemployed. You, you could tell even I was 37 when my parents, they had a story about their oldest son before. Oh, he's, you know, he was working in finance out in Singapore. Now I was this unemployed bum that taking <laughs> his kids out of school didn't know what the hell I wanted to do in my life and was traveling around the world in um, like two week to three week chunks, home swapping. Yep. Like the, the story couldn't gel with them. And they had that, that, that was not a success story. Like the, it's madness. You, but that you is think how, about, you, yeah. You think about how crazy that is. It's like, you know, stressed to the gills, working, hardly seeing your kids, not satisfied with what you're doing. But if you got a good title, and a respectable industry and, and income. Oh, this guy's really successful. And then it's like, oh, who's this loser who spends all of his time exactly how he wants to, having time with his kids, traveling, feeling very fulfilled, pursuing what he's passionate about. No, but he's a he's a loser, right? He's <laughs> he's unemployed. So yeah, it, it is wild. It's a it's a tough thing to overcome. I think just 
it's a great realization. Once you start homeschooling your kids, unschooling your kids, you just get smacked in the face all the time with how powerful that drive to be accepted by others is. And then it starts to make you wonder, like, what other areas am I just kind of going along with whatever's easiest, the status quo? Nobody nobody needs to defend the status quo. Even if the status quo is madness, you don't need to defend it. It's just accepted. And anything new, anything different from the status quo, even if it's obvious and valuable and beneficial, you're just constantly put on the defensive all the time. And it just, it just can be exhausting. It's like you have to justify your decisions if they're at all different from what other people do. If everyone's running off a cliff and you say, I'm not going to run off a cliff, you will be the one that has to justify why that's a good idea and, and not all the people who are running off a cliff, right? It's, so that's just a very, it, it's interesting. It's very revealing and it can help open you up. And so, so actually, let me, let me see if I can connect this a little bit to, to Bitcoin and some of this other stuff. Because when you mentioned, you know, Bitcoin and homeschooling, when we open that there's so many different things that, that sort of intersect in some ways, and I think what I found is, you know, I, I used to believe I, I've always, my, my driving passion has always been freedom. I want to live free and I want to help other people live free. And I used to believe that sort of education argumentation uh, was the way to do this. Well, you got to get people to believe in freedom from a, like a philosophical standpoint, to believe in the, the practicality of it, the morality of it, you know, and I have come to completely change my tack on that, which is part, partly what led me into to entrepreneurship instead of working in sort of nonprofits and, and educational you know, organizations. Because I think what really matters is the experience of freedom, the taste of freedom. And once you experience something that's better than state-controlled, centralized, cartelized, bureaucratized stuff, you're like, wow, this is really cool. And that leads you to start to think about it more abstractly, more philosophically. And so this is why it's like, hey, if I can offer you an alternative to a, to a cartelized uh, you know, taxi service, that's all government monopoly taxi service, I can, I can create Uber. You just use it and you're like, wow, this is better. And you're like, well, I don't want them to ban Uber. Why, why would they do that? And then you start to think, I wonder like, what else might be better? Like maybe the post office isn't the best way to deliver things. Maybe this monopoly doesn't need to exist. You know, you, you start homeschooling and then you start to think about, holy cow, what other government controlled centralized things are really sucky compared to doing them uh, <laughs> in a free market? You know, you, you think about Bitcoin, you think about decentralized money, separation of money and state, and you use it and you experience it and you, you, you know, you understand it and you start to think, what other areas can this apply to? And so I'm just so huge on experiencing freedom in my daily life, living it and helping others to do the same instead of trying to argue and convince people. Like, I don't want to convince anyone that like college is an inefficient way to get a signal on the market. I'm not trying to win any arguments. I just want to create an alternative and say, hey, here's a way to do it for much cheaper and more effective. If you like it, try it. And once you do and you're like, oh my gosh, well, if college wasn't necessary, why did I spend all that time in high school trying to get those grades? <laughs> and then you're like, huh, maybe school itself is kind of a silly way to go about preparing for the world. Um, and so I think trying, like, that's what I'm so passionate about. And that's, that's what I love about Bitcoin. That's what I love about, you know, the, the companies I'm working on alternatives to, to the education career conveyor belt is it's about letting people experience freedom tangibly. And I always think of this story I heard from a, a guy who grew up in communist China and he was, um, and now he's like a media mogul in Hong Kong he was like a porter at the train station and that was like his communist assigned job. And he had no idea that, that the outside world was anything but terrible. That's what he'd been taught. And he believed it. He thought communist China was the best there was. And he had a, a passenger from Hong Kong 
And he, he took his luggage and carried it for him. And the guy said, hey, thanks. And he gave him something. He'd never seen it before in his life. It was a piece of chocolate. And he said, you eat it. And he took a bite of it. And he said at that moment, he was like 10 or 11 years old. He said, I had no idea about capitalism, free markets. The re- I, I didn't know anything about it. For all I knew, they were everything terrible that the, the communist school told me they were. But I tasted chocolate and the, immediately the experience. I had never tasted anything like it. And I resolved then and there, wherever this came from, I need to go there. Because if they're capable of producing an experience this amazing, there must be more that's amazing there. And, and he did. He risked his life and, and was smuggled out of China into Hong Kong. And, and that hit me so powerfully. It wasn't, he didn't read a, a blog post or a book by, by Milton Friedman about c- capitalism as superior to communism or anything. Now, all those things are great. I, I'm a huge advocate of, of sharing ideas. But he tasted it. He experienced it. Like there's a reason totalitarian governments don't just ban free market books. They ban blue jeans and Marlboro cigarettes and jazz music because they know that if you taste what it's like to be free, you won't stand for tyranny anymore. And that's why I'm so passionate about creating experiences and freedom instead of just sharing the ideas. Man, that's incredible. What, a, what an analogy. That's awesome. i would not heard that story before. Well, you know, and, it, and it's, it's part of the reason why I think homeschooling is so powerful, too, in a very, in a very key way. I, I, I read this uh, the interviews with some guy in like the early 1800s was interviewing people who had fought in the Revolutionary War. And he was interviewing this old farmer and like, why did you fight? Was it because you read Thomas Paine's Common Sense? Was it because of, you know, no taxation without representation? He goes, no, I didn't really read much. I didn't, I didn't really have some theory behind it. I just was always free. And when somebody came along and told me you're not free, I was like, no, that's bullshit. I am free. (laughs) And I wanted to fight. And I think growing up homeschooled, growing up with a, with a high degree of freedom and autonomy for, from a child, if you've grown up with the experience of freedom, authoritarianism will feel foreign to you and you won't stand for it. If you've grown up being told stand in single file line, you're not allowed to go to the bathroom without permission. Bell rings. Doesn't matter what you're working on. Break it off. You're doing the next thing. If you're grown up conditioned to that, authoritarianism won't feel foreign to you. But if you've grown up in freedom, it will feel foreign to you. It will feel so weird that you won't stand for it. And I think that's so key. Rather than like, hey, let's teach our kids economics. Or, yeah, maybe if they're interested in it. But how about let's let them experience freedom. And if they've experienced it, they won't stand for the opposite. And that's what I think is so powerful about getting kids out of that, that factory school system. For sure. And now people are out of it. And, yes. Uh, they, they, <laughs> what, I, what excites me is we get a free bite of the cherry. Yeah. Uh, everybody without judgment. No yep. one can judge you now for having your kids out of school. Um, and, you know, I urge everybody to, you know, make the most of this time and look at it, study it. You know, is my kid happier? Because mental health wise, it can make a huge difference if they're just at home around the, uh, around the family all day long. It's incredible. I've, I've walked around my neighborhood, you know, every day during this crazy house arrest and, I've seen neighbors that I've never even seen before sitting out in the lawn on a blanket with their kids, playing games, talking, doing stuff. And it's been really cool. It's been really interesting to see that. I mean, the, the ability to have that experience, I think is amazing to give people a taste of that. Now it's unfortunate that everything else is shut down because one of the things I think is the most powerful, and this is, this is the hardest as a homeschooler. The hardest is that the rest of the world doesn't homeschool. And so like, if your kids are out and about in the middle of the day, like somebody could call a truancy officer on you. Somebody could call social services on you. So like you, you can't let them experience as much of the world as I would like, but like kids just being out and around, like being around commerce, 
being around like the broader world, what's happening, what's going on here, what's going, you know, a parent that owns a, a company, letting their kid be around them while they work, seeing that world, being exposed to it, instead of sending them off in some place completely sheltered from the real world for 20 years and then expecting them to know how to engage with it. So I, I would love to see a continuation of this, but especially in a realm where we're not all kind of shut into our houses, where, where kids are able to be around a broader array of things. I think that's so so powerful. I mean, imagine if we taught bike riding the way that we prepare people for careers. We'd be like, okay, for 20 years, you get to learn about the history of bikes, where they came from. You learn how to label the parts and, and do, you know, fill in the blanks and color pictures of bikes and answer quizzes about bikes. You never get to touch one. And then after 20 years, we drop you off in the middle of the highway and say, here you go, go ride a bike now. It's like, well, that's absolutely crazy, right? You can't be shut away from the market, from the world of commerce, from the broader, you know, society and just taught about it in theory and then asked to go engage in it all of a sudden, like mix it up, be out there, be out and about, you know, like if your kid's interested in baking, like, like go hang out at a bakery for a day and sweep the floor and shadow. Of course, you often can't do that because it's considered like child labor and you, <laughs> you know, there's the, the, it's very difficult often, but I think the more kids can be exposed to more aspects of the broader world not just sort of same age segregated, you know, sitting in front of a, a, a chalkboard, um, the better that is for everyone. For sure. Um, it's funny you bring up, um, <laughs> you reminded me of a story. My, my youngest daughter, Lauren, who sometimes comes on and asks a few questions to the guests because she, she'd shown an interest in what I was doing. And I didn't want to exclude her and shut her out of the room. And, and I wanted to expose her to, this is podcasting. These are the guests. We ask some questions, yada, yada, yada. And um, another time, she she's always said, oh, I want to own a cafe when I grow up. I want to own a cafe. So I took her to the local cafe and the, the cafe owner, we live in France, and the local cafe owner taught her how to use the um, the coffee machine and let her serve a customer. You know, this stuff, it's Love it. it's, it's brilliant, right? It, it's, it's, you know, going to sound like I'm patting myself on the back as a good parent now, but I, I want to get across this point that, you know, you don't have to stick to the rules. Yeah. And, you know, just a basic thing like that it is so powerful. You will forever have that memory. And kids, um, kids love it. They want to do grown-up stuff. You know, they, mm. they, want to, they want to play with older kids who are older than them and learn from them and do what they do. They want to be around what you're doing and learn from it. Like that interest, instead of squashing that, being like, no, read your fifth grade math. You know, it's, <laughs> it's like letting that letting that drive them, letting their interests drive them is, is so powerful. So let's talk about Praxis. And um, what what is Praxis? And uh, who's it aimed at? And um, give us a success story. We all love a success story. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Praxis uh, started in, in 2013. And until um, actually just January of this year, I sold uh, the majority of my my interest in it. I'm still an advisor in Praxis, and it's it's being run by a phenomenal team. Um, and that was so I could focus on my my second company, Crash. But so Praxis is a a boot camp and apprenticeship program, and it's it's all done uh, the, the boot camp's all done remotely. But it's for young people who are ready to start their careers, and that could be after college. Like I would say, maybe 20 percent of Praxis um, participants have a college degree and are like, Hey, I, I still don't, I don't know how to start my career. I don't even know, you know, what's valued, what skills, I, I don't know how to get a good job, but I would say the majority are either they have, they've had a little bit of college and realize it's a waste or they're skipping college altogether, which is, which is the most common. And they're just ready to start their careers. And so we have a, a six month boot camp where they're going through various modules and it's all based around, it's all project based and it's all based around building a body of work. 
So instead of just, I learned some stuff and then I took a test to prove it, it's like, okay, what area are you interested in? And we kind of help them first identify what what entry level uh, jobs, and we focus on startup jobs because we find that those are just a great career opportunity. What entry level startup jobs are you most interested in? And we work mostly with non-technical people. So most of them are not going into uh, you know computer programming. And so it's like, if you're really outgoing and competitive, sales is a great entry point. Maybe you're very empathetic and kind. Maybe customer success is a good entry point. You know, marketing can be a good entry point operations. There's a handful of roles that, you know, you can, you can go into at an entry level and succeed. And so we try to help them identify what are those roles that you might be, be good at and might be interested in. And now what is valued in those roles on the marketplace? So you might need to learn Salesforce, which is a common software tool. You might need to learn how to, how to do, you know, uh, run Facebook ads. If you want to go for a marketing role or do some graphic design using various tools that are out there, um, you know, building landing pages, running email campaigns, whatever it might be. We, we help them identify those roles and then they go and they actually build projects that demonstrate their skills. And so they have something to show. They build a personal website, a portfolio of projects, and they create this kind of digital profile. that's like, here's what I'm all about. And then at the end of the, the six-month boot camp, they are going out and pitching themselves to companies saying, I want to come apprentice for you, companies in, in the Praxis network. Um, you know, here's what I've built. Here's what I would do for you. Um, you know, they're actually creating a value proposition for those companies. So they don't just say, I'm so-and-so, here's my resume. They email them, they send them a message that says, hey, I love what your company does. I went ahead and made this, you know, two-minute video walking through a uh, hundred leads that I put together for you. And I want to continue to do this in your business development role. And they, they basically show them. And so we found through the years that people with, you know, people who are 18, zero experience, no college degree are beating out people with a degree, two to three years experience in the industry for, for some of these roles frequently because they are showing their skill and their interest by creating projects, by creating pitches for those companies instead of just sending a generic resume. And so we've had a, a tremendous amount of success. There's been, uh, I think, 350 people have gone through the program. Again, the, you know, the, the graduation rate is about 87, 88%. So some people don't, don't make it all the way through. But those who graduate, like a 95, 96% um, rate of them getting hired full-time after the program average starting salary is around 50 K average age upon graduation is like 19 or, or 20 maybe. Um, and it's incredible. So by the time they're, you know, by the time their friends are graduating college, they've got four or five years experience in the workforce. They've earned a couple hundred thousand dollars and they have zero college debt because the program you, you pay tuition, which is 12 K, but you earn 15 K during the apprenticeship component. So, um, you know, the net cost is zero is that, is the idea. So it's been really tremendous. And that experience, especially the component of them creating projects and sort of building that body of work, creating pitches to send to companies, being able to get so many young people with no, you know, they don't meet any of the criteria on paper, like the job postings will say degree required, they'll get the job anyway with no degree. And nobody even asks because they send them something better. Seeing that happen over and over again is what led me to say, okay, this praxis program is like an elite thing. It's like the Navy SEALs or something. You know, it, it, we, we can serve hundreds, maybe thousands of people every year, but it, but it peaks out because it's a, it's a high intensity, you know, hands-on um, boot camp and, and placement process. But can we take the core idea of being your own credential, of showing your work, of winning your job by creating a signal that's more powerful than a resume or degree? Can we scale that up? And so that's when I launched Crash um, about a year and a half ago. And that's essentially a, a platform to allow people to create 
a digital profile and to create tailored pitches for companies where they can send them a you know a video pitch projects they've done and um, and use that to get in the door and and here's the analogy for Bitcoin people this is like a proof of work uh, on the on the marketplace for for human capital right so instead of hey just trust uh, instead of a trusted third party hey this trusted third party said that I you know was good enough to graduate from their school so here you go employer. Uh, Stanford said that I got a 3.7. Trust them to know that I'll be a good employee. Instead of that, you do proof of work. You say, hey, here you go, company. I took the time to put together this project that I made for you. I put in the effort. I put in the work. That can't be faked. You, you have to actually, you, you know, you, if you send a generic cover letter, dear sir or madam, I would be a great fit for your company. That's very low effort. You can blast that to anyone. If you say, hey, Daniel, I love your podcast. I want to be your podcast intern. I took three of your episodes and I created these 30-second video montages where I took the best highlights, put them to some cool music and some imagery, and I've posted them up on Facebook. Uh, Here you go. You can have these for free. I'd love to do more of this for you. It's like, whoa, that's proof of work. That's not like, hey, I have a degree in communications. I'd like to intern for you. That's like, hey, I built something for you. And so that's the idea is like helping people be their own credential to to build a better signal than these trusted third-party bullet points on a resume. Um, That's kind of the philosophy behind uh, Crash, which spun out of Insights at Praxis. That's awesome, man. That's so, so effective. Um, And it's funny because um, I I do a similar kind of thing. I consult for startups and uh, primarily with their sales team. And they're always asking me, oh, how do we write a good email? How do we do this? How do we structure it? And blah, blah, blah. I'm like, open up QuickTime, hit move a record, say what you need to say, and send them the video file. Yeah. I can never do that. I can never do that. I said, do you think they're going to read to the last line of your email? No one does. If they open that video, are they going to listen to your last word? Of course they are because they've never seen anything like this before. Yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. I mean, the bar is low in some way. Like, you know, I've, I've posted job postings on AngelList and, and different places. And I get like 150, what they say are applications. Well, you go look at them. About 100 of them are literally just the person clicked one button, apply. And all it sends me is, a, you know, basically their LinkedIn profile and says they're interested in this job. And I'm like, well, I have no idea. Do, do they even know what the job is? Are they just mass clicking everywhere? Maybe 20 or 30 of them come with a little note that says, Hey, I think your company is great. I have 12 years of experience, blah, blah, blah. And then maybe 10 of them come with a note that's actually customized. Hey, I checked out Crash. It looks pretty cool. But in the job posting I put up, I said, the only way I'll accept applications is if you send me a video pitch at this email address. Of the 150 people who applied on AngelList, only three did that. And I didn't look at any of the rest. I ignored them. But the bar is so low, people are just used to, they think it's a numbers game. So they're just blasting out resumes to hundreds of places and just taking the time to say, let me let me find some places I'm actually interested in, do some research and put in some work and send them something that's hard to ignore. Send them something that is like, whoa, okay, I owe this person at least a, a callback because they, they, they made something for me, something unique to me. Uh, really, really powerful if you can do that. Yeah, so true. Uh, let's talk about a, a little bit of FUD around. Um, I usually try and bust Bitcoin FUD on the podcast, um, but I'd like to uh, bust some um, homeschool FUD. Um, you know, the, the, the first one is, well, the first, the top two, um, your, your kids are never going to be able to socialize. <laughs> so I grew up. I grew up hearing this all the time. And I actually hear this one less now. I think homeschooling has become wide enough and, and enough parents who don't homeschool actually 
kind of wish they could, that I hear this a lot less. But growing up, I heard this all the time. I mean, homeschooling was borderline illegal. It was illegal in some states, not not in Michigan where I was. But people would be like, we, I remember we'd be at the checkout counter with my mom. And like me and my siblings, we'd be talking to the person checking out. They'd be like, oh, are you in school? No, we homeschool. Oh, and then they look at my mom and say, aren't you worried about socialization? Like right in front of us, you know? And I'm thinking, I always thought that was funny as a kid because all of my friends who went to school, they all had one thing in common. They could not talk to anyone who wasn't their age. They were like totally shy and embarrassed and awkward around adults. And every homeschooler I know, even if they're weird and nerdy and whatever else, they're very comfortable talking to adults and kids younger than them and kids older than them. And I always thought that was odd. Like if your definition of socialization is ability to know what's considered cool by 30 kids my exact same age that I'm locked into a pen with every day, then like, why is that valuable? I don't want that kind of socialization. <laughs> like, I don't think that's necessarily good socialization. Socialization is being able to, to converse with a lot of people in the broader world, you know, and, and, and find your way around in, in human relations. And I have found that homeschoolers tend to be far better at that. Far better. 100%. I've seen it 100 times more. And, um, you know, yeah, absolutely agree with everything you've said. Okay. Um, well, they'll never be able to go to college. Yeah, that, that's there's two levels on which that's uh, I, I would fight back against that FUD. One is they absolutely can. I did it. Tons of homeschoolers do it all the time. At the end of the day, colleges want money <laughs> and they want to look good. And so if you can show them that you have attributes that will make them look good when you graduate, you know, you can get in, you can get scholarships, show them that you have the money, you can get in. I mean, this is this is not even really a thing anymore. Like if you think that's the case, actually do some research into college admissions and colleges you're interested in. There's literally, I've yet to encounter in like 20 years, anybody who has been unable to go to college because they, you know, homeschooled. I don't even have a high school diploma. I never took the ACT or SAT. Um, somehow I managed to get a degree. I actually got a master's degree later as well. <laughs> so I faked my way through. The second objection is, is college universally, like even if it were the case, you can never go to college without, is college the ultimate goal in life or is it something else? Is college the end or is it instrumental to the end? And if it's not the end, what is it instrumental to? Having a particular career, having a particular, and then you got to ask yourself, does, is college the best possible way, given all the costs and benefits to obtain that? Now, if you're going into a field where it's legally mandated that you get a degree, you know, accountancy or being a lawyer or a doctor or whatever, fine. But I would argue that kids at 18 almost never have enough knowledge to know that that's what they want to do. Uh, and they need a little time in the real world to figure out if they're actually going to enjoy practicing law. Because like 80% of lawyers I know hate their life and wish that they weren't lawyers. So you might want to figure that out before you go into all that debt. But if you have something legally required, okay, obviously college is a necessary step to, to, to go do that if you know that's what you want. But for everything else, it's like, okay, what do I actually want to do in the next year, two years, six years, 10 years? Is college the absolute best way to achieve that? And for my money, it's almost impossible to find a, a place where it's not legally mandated, where that's the case, where it's the best way to achieve it. Even if you're like, I want to have a four-year party with a bunch of people my age. Well, move to a college town of your choice, rent a house, go to all the sports games, play intramural rugby, sit in on classes for all you and don't pay tuition and you can have the entire experience for none of the money, <laughs> you know, like even if you want the social part. So I would, I would, uh, it's definitely a myth. You can absolutely get into college, but I would always ask people the question, what is their goal? What do they think college is going to do for them and, and see if there's a better way to accomplish it? 
That's an awesome hack. Just move to the college town. Truly. And you're- <laughs> you, you will never get kicked out. Of, if you walk in to listen to a lecture and you, and you can even ask the person, hey, can I take you out to coffee and pick your brain? Hey, can you come on my pocket? Like you have access to every lecture, every professor in the world. Nobody checks if you're current on tuition before, because nobody does that because none of the kids are there for that. They're there for the piece of paper. And once you realize you can build a better signal than the piece of paper, well, you can put together whatever kind of experience you want of education, of socialization, of you know career readiness. You can put together an amazing one-year, two-year, four-year experience that involves college campuses and anything else you want it to without paying a dime of tuition. So, Man, I hope people are listening to this. This is awesome. No, I never even thought about that, but it's so true. Yeah, I, it really is. I mean- I've, there have been a very few people that I've come across who have kind of done this. So like one, one guy like moved to <laughs> Princeton, New Jersey and like sat in on classes. Um, and I, and I've met a few people who are like, Hey, like I'm just going to be on it. Cause cause self-honesty is really important. A lot of times kids and parents will say, Oh, my child is going to learn and be enlightened or whatever. But in reality, it's like, I just want my kid out of the house and I just, I want to let them just party for a couple years and get it out of their system. And I don't want to know about it. Right. And if you're honest and like what I really want is just the social scene and the partying. I, I know a guy who's like, all right, I'm going to buy a house on a college campus. It's like maybe $150,000, house. I don't remember where it was. And then I'm going to, it had like three bedrooms, four bedrooms. I'm going to rent it out to college students. I'm going to live in one of the rooms. I'm going to rent it out. And it's going to be like the awesome party house. And he was making money. He was making more than his mortgage payment every month. And he did it for like two years made money. He was in every, like, he would go to all the games, all the tailgates. All the, he had like the greatest college social experience. And then he sold his house at the end and he like profited like 50 K over the two year period. <laughs> I mean, the social experience. So <laughs> that's, you, you just, that's old school right there, right? The film. Exactly. It's uh, old school. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man. That's awesome. Well, what a way to, to bust that FUD. That's excellent. Um, all right. Last one, which is going to be close to your heart. Well, they'll never be able to get a job. Yeah. Yeah. What I, what was really interesting is when we started Praxis and we have a pretty rigorous application process, like 10% of applicants get in. And it's not because, again, we're obviously not looking for any academic credentials or anything. We're looking for what we call forward tilt. People who are eager, hungry, entrepreneurial, willing to work hard, not don't think they're too good for grunt work, but are creative and innovative and like want to learn and want, you know, who, who will be awesome employees and who will absolutely be standout employees and, and can, can shine. And we know they have that raw material. And so something really interesting happened. We didn't, we didn't intend in any way for Praxis to be like for homeschoolers or anything. Um, in fact, I, I suspected that homeschoolers would not be super big on it because so many of them, the way that they're going to validate that homeschooling was a good choice was that their kids get into good colleges. And in fact, homeschoolers tend to get into better colleges and have better higher education experiences. And that's how their parents are like, see, I told you, mom and dad, it was going to work out. You know, they got into Harvard there. What are you going to do now? And so I didn't really think of that. What, what we found though, was that the best applicants are like almost always homeschoolers, homeschoolers and, and people whose parents own small businesses. And if you can combine those two, it's like almost a lock <laughs> because they have independence. They're, they're creative. They're out of the box. They're entrepreneurial. They have characteristics that employers are hungry for. They think different. They do things different. They, they go deep and specialize in things. This is something that's really interesting that the schooled approach is like to go really broad. And again, you do 50 minute segments every day and seven different subjects. And you're just moving along this, this track. If you're like, Hey, I want to get lost in, you know, Russian literature. You can't just do that for seven hours a day or for three months on end. 
homeschoolers tend to get lost in things. Oh, I'm really interested in leather working. I'm going to do nothing but learn how to work with leather for like months. I'm going to become amazing at piano. And they, they get lost and they specialize. And what people fear is like, oh, well, then they'll be pigeonholed. It's completely the opposite. What you learn when you master something isn't just the thing. You learn how to master something. You learn how to follow your curiosity and turn it into discipline and mastery. And someone who spent two years doing nothing but playing the piano, I'm telling you, they're going to be better at learning any other new skill than someone who has spent those two years doing tiny little segments of 10 different things and, and you know being forced to be shuffled around. And so homeschoolers often have the ability to learn things really in depth quickly, to master things quickly, and they know how to create their own structure. They're not dependent on external forces structuring every element of their day. And if you go look at surveys of employers, what are all the things that they want most? The top things that they want are creativity, entrepreneurial thinking, independence, uh, know how to use basic software skills, communication skills, ability to work with a team. They want you to be creative problem solvers. They get all the best you know, opportunities. Machines and software can do all the rote memorization stuff. That's just rule following. If it comes to rule following, Software does a better job at following rules than humans. Robots do a better job at following rules than humans. So getting really good at following rules and, you know, getting grades that other people tell you matter is not that valuable in the, in the workplace. What's really valuable is creative problem solving, knowing how to structure your own day, being self-motivated, all those things. And homeschoolers have those far, far more um, than people who go to school. So not only can they get jobs they're dramatically more employable at more interesting, high leverage, high income and fulfilling work. Yeah, brilliant. And practice, is there an age um, that you have to be like uh, before you uh, apply? Is there like a minimum we age? say 18 just for legal liability, but I, I can tell you we have had a few 17 and even one or two 16-year-olds do it. In those cases, it just has to be crystal clear that one, they've got what it takes and two, that their parents are 100% behind it because they're technically not, you know, legally independent. So it tends to be, um, you know, 18 to early 20s. Right, cool. All right. Well, you touched on it earlier, Bitcoin. Um, let's focus on it now because, um, how, I mean, how did you find the rabbit hole? What, what, was the, what was that aha moment for you? Yeah, so I've I've been you know a huge advocate of of freedom and free markets and absolutely everything for a, a long time. And I think while while I was working at uh, the Institute for Humane Studies, I was running these kind of campus seminars about you know libertarianism, free market economics, whatever. In like a discussion group, this would have been about 2012. Somebody was talking about you know we're talking about alternatives to fiat currency and gold standards and free market money and all these different things. And someone's like, yeah, well, like digital money. And I'm like, well, what do you mean digital money? You know, just like credit cards or whatever. And they're like, no, have you heard of Bitcoin? And I'm like, I don't think so. And so we started talking about it, started looking it up. And I was like, instantly fascinated by it, instantly fascinated by it. And once I kind of dove in a little bit and, and understood the basics, I'm not a highly technical person, but I absolutely fell in love with it. And then I'll never forget, it must have been around then, 2012, 2013, I was at some conference and, and Jeffrey Tucker uh, who's like a, you know, a, an author, a, a thought, you know, kind of a libertarian thought leader, I guess. Um, he kept saying, Oh, let me send you some Bitcoin. Do you have a wallet yet? I'm like, nah, I haven't taken the time. Oh, I'll send you like five or 10 Bitcoin. You come on. It's really fun. I'm like, yeah, maybe later, maybe later. <laughs> I never, I didn't do it at the time. Um, but, uh, but as soon as, you know, I started playing around on different, you know, exchanges and stuff and just kind of like, I have little bits of, you know, I 
I'd get a little bit of Bitcoin here or there. As soon as Coinbase came out, um, I got I got on there and I you know started buying Bitcoin and then I bought some. I went through a phase where I kind of bought different altcoins and would play around. I would try to learn about them more more just as a learning experience, not like as an investment. Just like okay, what is this one supposed to do? You know, what's Ethereum all about? What's I remember all these old coin like dark coin. There's all these crazy coins, and I would kind of do that. And I, I've since I just don't have the time or energy to look. And then ever since the giant ICO boom, I was just like, okay, this is just crazy and overwhelming. And most of these seem kind of <laughs> kind of shady or just purely speculative. Uh, and so I I sort of you know didn't have the time to continue with that. But I've been hugely passionate about Bitcoin um, ever since about 2012, and. I would say I've gotten more, I used to just be a sort of consumer of like Bitcoin articles, blog posts, you know, Reddit, et cetera, until maybe 2015, 16, when sort of the block size debate started coming out, I started getting much more, you know, just keeping up to date a lot more and getting, you know, occasionally tweeting and weighing in about it and just discussing it, looking for people to chat about it with people who are interested in talking about it. Um, and so it's kind of been a, you know, it's, it's, it's one of the fun areas of my life where I have no, it's not any part of my business success or my family and my, my companies and my family are like the primary, you know, focuses of life. So it's kind of in this cool hobby realm, although I do benefit when, when the value goes up because I have <laughs> some skin in the game and I've, I've, you know, been fortunate to, to do really well in that regard since I got in a little bit early. Um, but it's, it's just been a blast. And to me, it's all about that experience, as I talked about, experiencing freedom. Like, you're not going to argue people out of central banking. The, the incentive structure, the, the public choice dynamics um, are just not going to make that possible. But if you can, as Satoshi brilliantly did, create this, this alternative and let people use it, let people taste it, um, the more people use it, the more people utilize it. And that's why I'm really, really keen on any use cases, any real world usage of any kind. It's so valuable. Things that not just as a hobby or because you ideologically or intellectually support it, but things that are like, hey, this isn't possible unless you use Bitcoin. Or hey, this is more valuable if done with Bitcoin. And then people who have no ideology at all will have an incentive to, to utilize it, to adopt it. Um, and that's when you start to experience what what free market money is like. And so uh, I'm, I'm super excited about it. I, I got to say, I'm um, I don't know if I'm bullish or not. Like I'm, I'm like 50, 50 of whether bit, Bitcoin really will succeed long-term. Cause I, I think Bitcoiners, we can tend to underestimate the power of governments to uh, sabotage or overcome uh, or shut down projects like this uh, efforts like this. Um, I would love to say, I think it's utterly unstoppable and it's inevitable that it will take over as the new form of money. But I don't think that I, I have enough confidence to say that. I hope that's the case. I think there's a 50% chance that's the case. Um, and I, I would love to do everything I can to make that happen. But uh, I don't know. Yeah, it's um, yeah. You, you make a good point. I, I, I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm just so comfortable that the fact that, that this thing is not going away. And, um, you know, to store value in it for me is, uh, is the way to look after generations of, uh, of my family. So... But I don't know. Like, yeah, you, you you always have to have, you know, your eye over your shoulder. Um, and again, like, you know, a very poignant lesson was fighting the Fed in, in, into the stock market, right, for the last um, 12 years. Um, people that were shorting um, equities have just been wrecked uh, yeah. time and time again because you, you just cannot fight that fight. Um, but I, I do feel it's different this time with, with Bitcoin. Um, but we... 
we will see. Um, what then? <laughs> so you, you're this weird guy that does homeschooling and now does Bitcoin. So like the eye rolling you must get when um, <laughs> when you start, because <laughs> like, I experienced this myself. Um, how do you, you know, like you mentioned it before about um, homeschooling. You, you can't really push it too hard because it's really aggressive for people to listen to. Uh, it kind of goes against every moral fiber in their body to think about something that's going against the education system. Uh, now you're going against the monetary system. How do you shill? I mean, lightly, I'm sure, but um, how, how do you kind of uh, find those conversations with your with, with with the people that you really care about the most and wish you could just like click a button and say you are now going to understand Bitcoin and <laughs> like well, yeah. You, yeah do you know what I'm trying to get across like yeah, the, the I know people that you care about the most yep I know what you're trying to get at so I I have come a complete 360 from the way that I'm kind of naturally wired and the way that I used to be. I used to be sort of an evangelist for my beliefs, whether that be, you know, free markets, um, homeschooling, you know, any of those things, Bitcoin. I've come 360 to where I'm like, I'm almost like the opposite of an evangelist. My goal is I never want to I never want to have a conversation about my radical beliefs with someone if they didn't initiate it and if they aren't genuinely curious. And so it's really, it takes a lot of pressure off and it makes it way, it makes the conversations way more valuable because if someone gets to the point of genuine curiosity and they want to know and they want to ask, that's going to be a good conversation. And so I find my goal is to live my life in such a way that it makes people curious, that it makes them want to ask. And, you know, I'm not, not to, to make a religious analogy, because I think that can be dangerous, but there's a, there's a, you know, I, I grew up learning all about the Bible and all that stuff. And so I have all these analogies that come to mind. There's an analogy, there's a, there's a something in the Bible that says like, live your life in such a way so that people, people want to know the reason for the hope that you have. Like they want to know what is up with this guy? Why does he live this way? And I think about that, not in the religious context, but in the context of, I want to live so free Albert Camus has this great quote, live so free that your very existence is an act of rebellion. I want to live so free that my very existence is, puts a question in people's minds. Like, well, what is up with that guy? How he's just different. He's, this is interesting. You know, he seems to be getting good results here. I want, you know, the way that my kids and I interact, the way that I conduct my business, the way that I, you know, talk about things, the way that I live. If that is enough to people to say, Hey, I've seen you talk about like Bitcoin and whatever else. And like, you seem like a kind of guy that I would like. You don't seem crazy. You're not in my face. You're not telling me I'm an idiot. You're not offending me. I want to know more. Tell me more. And I try to live in such a way that, that it makes people want to ask questions about those beliefs. I'm, I'm very open about those beliefs. I mean, I blog about them. I tweet. I talk about that stuff. But I don't do it to people who, don't, who didn't ask me to. I try to be really careful about that, even cl close friends and family. And I wait until they sort of see this critical mass. Like, okay, whenever we get together, all we talk about is football. But I keep noticing that you're like always tweeting about this thing about, you know, whatever, Bitcoin. Well, what is that all about? Tell me. And once they've asked, once they've made that invitation, then it's a great conversation. And so that's, that's kind of what I've gone to. Like, let, you know, let my life be a, a reason to make people want to ask me about my beliefs. <laughs> yeah, that's a great answer. That's a brilliant answer. 
that gives me you know some things to talk about another tool in the uh in the toolbox there yeah i, I tell you what man and, and, and you know i came to this realization years ago that like if i care so much about freedom i want to make sure that i feel free that i'm living free and i found that like watching the news for example which i haven't done for maybe 15 years at least 10 years um, it just makes me feel less free. My my emotions are dictated by whatever information some idiot decides to talk about on the TV. Uh, why would I let? Why would I give over control of my mood to some third party and whatever they believe? Like I don't want to do that. Um, you know, if I'm if I'm so passionate about freedom, but I'm just angry and I feel like I'm a slave to responding to every Twitter comment, uh, I'm not free. I'm not living free. I'm like a slave to the beliefs of other people. Like I need them to think what I think or else I can't be happy. Well, that's not freedom. Like I need to, I need to emancipate myself from that, emancipate myself from the news, from politics, from the good opinion of others, from knowing that others agree with me. And then once you start to live free like that, you find this weird thing is that people start to want to talk to you about those things more, not less, because you don't need them to agree with you. You don't have that desperation that is annoying and frustrating to them. Uh, so it's, it's been a really, a really great, um, it's just more fun. Uh, quality of life is higher. <laughs> yeah. I did, I've done the same as you. I gave the news up God knows how many years ago, more than five. Um, and you cannot explain to people how much of a difference that makes. You know, I've tried to tell my parents, <laughs> my parents, like, you know, they're oh, so tired. I didn't sleep well last night. Yeah. That's because I know you I know your evening routine, like, 10 to 10.45 p.m. at night, you're sitting down with tea, which is caffeine, watching the most negative shit you could have watched <laughs> throughout your whole day. And then you live in the UK, they top that off with the weather. So what do you think? <laughs> like, it it is incredible. The thing that I've noticed is like you get this reverse culture shock where once you haven't watched the news for a good bit of time, you walk into an airport and here in the US, they like blast CNN in every airport. And you see the news and you, you have this moment where you look around and you look at the other people and you're like, are they, do they think this is like normal? Like, cause the, it, it appears like a complete clown show. It appears so phony and sensational when you haven't watched it for a long time that it's hard to believe that you ever took it at all seriously. And you're like, oh my gosh, once you, once you turn yourself off from that, that drip of constant, you know, chaotic, negative sh bullshit, and then you see it again, you're like, what in the world is this? <laughs> you know, it's like, it's just, it's bizarre. It's like if you go off caffeine for a long time and you have one cup of coffee and you're like, oh my gosh, this stuff, I'm flying, right? It's just, you realize how desensitized you become. So yeah, I'm a huge advocate of that. Tur turn off that stuff, man. Take control. Like you, you know, there's so much information in the world. Why would you allow yourself to consume the one sliver selected by somebody other than you and, and framed in the way that they decide. And that one sliver happens to make you feel shitty every time. Well, why would you do that? Why would you consume an information diet that makes you unhappy perpetually? You know, it just doesn't make sense. It makes no sense. And it is a clown show. You're totally right. You know, um, being in the financial markets, I used to be um, CNBC, Squawk Box, all that kind of stuff. You, <laughs> I remember, I, didn't, I did not watch that thing for years. And then when there's um, like a huge market turn, either up or down, generally down, um, I want to watch, uh, you know, what's going on. And it is just like this, th these flapping heads. <laughs> and you realize th the people they're bringing on barely know what they're talking about anyway. And, and like clown show, right? Kramer so screaming his freaking like head off. Like, this is a buy. This is a buy. <laughs> and you're oh, my God. <laughs> 
Like, yeah, it's it's crazy. So turn off the news, people. There, there's there's tip number one. That's right. Turn or off the, the news. Main... Turn on Daniel's podcast. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, let's talk about um, your books uh, because I lost count. How many have you written now? Uh, I've written or co-written or edited. I think nine. Now, most of them are pretty short, though. So that, 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 you know, it's not like I'm sitting down and writing thousand page novels or something. But as we were talking about before we started, you're sitting down and writing a daily blog, which is an incredible uh, what, what discipline. I mean, what, what, how long have you been doing that? And, you know, how have you felt that affect your, your daily life? Oh my gosh, it's absolutely incredible. I, I, it's like the greatest hack I've ever found. Like the, the most, low-hanging fruit in terms of ROI for personal growth, creativity, confidence, productivity uh, has been daily blogging. So I started in 2012, my friend TK Coleman, he had been doing it and he's like, just kept going on about how amazing it was. And he challenged me to do it because I was like, man, I'm kind of like, I have this great job. I believe in what I do. I like, you know, live in a great place. I have a great family. I'm like, everything should be great in my life, but I'm kind of bored. I'm restless, you know? And he's like, and I didn't know what to do. I didn't have a business idea at the time or anything like that. And he's like, you just need more creative, creative outlets. And I'm like, well, I don't have time to like play music or do stuff like he's like, just blog every day. You got to do it. You got to do it. So I said, all right, fine. I'll take up the challenge. I'll blog every day for six months. And I'm telling you, it absolutely blew open the floodgates directly coming out of that. And, you know, about three months in the beginning of 2013, the idea for Praxis emerged and I just, I was on this like creative tear because creativity begets creativity. And when you, when you learn that you can turn creativity into a discipline, it's not just something you wait to be inspired, but if you show up every single day and force yourself to write something and hit publish, nobody's going to read it, especially at first. And it like, doesn't really matter. It doesn't have to be good. If you just do it every single day, that discipline, your ability to generate ideas, put them on paper and ship them and overcome your embarrassment, overcome your perfectionism that says, I can't let anyone see this until it's perfect. Overcome all of that and just do that every day consistently. It just below, like it turns you into a machine. We have every Praxis participant do a 30 day blog challenge. And like without fail, that's usually the most transformative part of the, of the pro. They just talk like many of them continue blogging every day for some of them are on streaks of a thousand days and whatever. Um, and just like it blows something open in your brain, in your ability. And I've just found if I do that every morning, whatever else happens that day, if I have a very unproductive, distracted day, whatever, I at least did something. I started the day shipping something, completing something, getting something done. And I have a non-zero day. So at least I added a tiny bit of value to my stock of human capital, whatever else happened. So, um, yeah, I've been doing that, uh, I've taken a few hiatuses here and there to experiment with other things like daily podcasting or videos or other things. Um, but I've, I've been daily blogging for, um, you know, about seven, seven or seven and a half years, more or less, um, most of the time. And so what, what ended up happening with that is after I had a bunch of blog posts, maybe after the first year or so, I had, a actually Jeffrey Tucker, he used to be with an organization called Liberty.me and they, they did a publishing and he said, Hey, I've read a lot of your articles they are pretty awesome. You should publish a book with us. And I was like, well, I don't really have the time to write like a full length book. He's like, no, no, no. Just collect like a hundred of your best essays, uh, you know, around a, a theme of, of Liberty and, and see what we got. I said, okay. So I collected them and sent them over and he's like, yeah, cool. They did some editing and they, they published it. And I was like, well, that was really cool. That was really fun. And I didn't realize I had so much stuff just from one year of daily blogging and you, know, you got almost 400 posts. And so, um, 
most of my books, there've been a few exceptions. That's basically what I've done after, after a certain amount of time. I see that like, oh, for the last two years that I have been writing nonstop about the theme of, you know, education. So I'm going to turn that into a book uh, and publish that, you know, with some editing and whatever, but take the, the basic content. Um, and so most of my books are more or less collections of, you know, essays, blog posts, and I'll, I'll do some editing. I'll, I'll work them around a little bit. Um, and that's just kind of a way to like, I don't, I don't make like a bunch of money off of the books or whatever I get. Like, you know, every month I see like, Oh, I made like $12 on Amazon this month or whatever. <laughs> you know, they're not a, they're not a financial thing. They're for two reasons. One, because it gives me a sense of completion and pride that like, Hey, you know, you crank out a blog post every day for a thousand days. Turns out that like a quarter of those are pretty good. I kind of like them. And if I take 15% of those and put them into a book, this is actually kind of a cool theme. Um, it creates a body of work that makes it easier for people to know what I'm all about. It helps sort of expand the reach of my brand and the ideas I like, which helps benefit my companies, um, get, you know, gets me on podcasts and things like that. So it's kind of a, a digital calling card. Um, and it just sort of, it feels good. It's sort of a, a way to, to package up all of that work of daily blogging into something thematic. And, uh, you know, there's just something, if you've ever like, physically held a book that you wrote, it just feels kind of cool. There's something about it that's like, just, you know, maybe it's egotistical, but, but it, it's, it's a, it's a good feeling. If you, <laughs> it's like seeing your name in print, you know, it's like, it, it just feels good. There's something cool about it. So yeah, I've, I've done that uh, a number of times and it's been really fun and it's helped, it's helped me crystallize some themes. Cause what happens when you daily blog is like, you don't even necessarily know what you're going to end up talking about. And like themes emerge over time. And I'm like, oh, I didn't even know that I had so much to say about this topic. That's kind of interesting. And like themes will emerge and then books will kind of emerge out of those. And that, that's been a really fun process. Yeah. And I can vouch for the fact that it's very cool to hold your own book in your hand and um, even reread it every now and then or just dip into a chapter uh, because it's like a look into the past of where you were, what yes. you were thinking and kind of a refresh of Right. Yeah. I got to get back to those values. Maybe I've strayed a little off that. Um, so yeah, it's very, very cool. Um, I wanted to ask you as well, um, about a hack that, that you said, you know, like at least you ship something each day. And if you have one of those horrible distracted days where you get to the end of the day and you think I've achieved nothing, uh, my to-do list has just grown instead of getting, um, you know, completely smashed through. Uh, I do something at the end of the, when, when I, when I, feel that emotion coming on. I do something called a reverse to-do list where I actually just sit down for five minutes and just write down and then draw a line through absolutely everything I did do that day. And that could be every email I sent, any phone call I made, any kind of little chore I did around the house, even like um, if, if I had to go and do the shopping, whatever. Um, that helps you like reset that, that awful kind of depressive emotion coming on at the end of the night and the anxiety. Because you do realize you weren't literally doing nothing all day. You had probably a ton of shit going on. Um, it's just you didn't you didn't achieve the exact things that you wanted to. So uh, reverse to do list. I love that idea. That's a great idea. There's there's been a few times where I've done something similar. Like I want to see, you know, I feel like like when somebody asks me, "What'd you do today?" You know, my wife or my kids. I'm like, uh, I honestly don't know. <laughs> you know. Like somehow I was busy all day, and so occasionally I've gone and looked at my inbox. And I'm like, oh, I read like 120 emails and sent like 60 today. I didn't even realize that. Wow, that happened without me even noticing. Or sometimes at the end of a year, I'll sort of do like a recap and, and I'll try to add up all the podcast interviews I did, 
how many how many words I wrote or, or articles I published, uh, how many views they got, or whatever. Just sort of for my own. And you kind of look back and you're like, wow, if you just do a little something every day, that compounding power is amazing. And you'll you'll realize like, whoa, I actually really did accomplish a lot. So that's a really cool idea. I've never done a reverse to-do list at the end of the day uh, like <laughs> that, but I've, I've done something sort of similar a few times and always found it to be really encouraging. Cool. Well, I usually ask people um, about resources around Bitcoin, what led them to Bitcoin, but uh, that goes on every podcast uh, pretty much. I think everybody's got a, a good long list of resources now. Um, people are looking for homeschooling resources at, at this point, Isaac. Uh, who are some of the kind of influencers in the space that you can point people towards, uh, be they podcasts, videos, books, um, films? Is there any like standout ones that you could share? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So the the ones that come to mind immediately for me, um, I would look up any books by John Holt. Uh, he's got some excellent books. John Taylor Gatto, uh, some excellent books as well. And Peter Gray. Um, Peter Gray's book, Free, Free to Learn, is absolutely amazing. Um, there's a, a current writer. She actually just published a book. I think I actually am mentioned in the book. So um, I hope I am anyway, because she interviewed me for it. Uh, Carrie McDonald, she has a book called Unschooling, and it kind of covers the whole panoply of like homeschooling, unschooling, different sort of variations on that. That's a great kind of comprehensive resource that will give you a lay of the land. It will, it will refer you to a lot of the other books and ideas, kind of give you a history of all this stuff. And Carrie McDonald writes articles all the time, mostly for FEE.org. Um, about homeschooling, unschooling, educational choice. She's she's very active right now um, and, and writes a lot of good stuff. And then, um, you know, I always liked looking into the Sudbury Valley School. A lot of, they have like little books and stuff. They're kind of hard to find. They're kind of like not super out there. Daniel Greenberg founded it, but they have some really cool stories, a lot of anecdotes and stories because they've been doing this since like the 60s. They've had this school where kids of all ages show up and do whatever they want. Uh, so it's not really a school. Um and then there's a podcast called the School Sucks Podcast. Now, I, I know in like recent years, they're more sort of personal growth, personal development. They've kind of broadened out quite a bit. But in the early few years, at least, of the podcast, there's a lot of great episodes and series about the history of schooling, you know, answering a lot of common objections. The guy who does it, Brett Vinat, he was a, a teacher and he helped kids prepare for SATs and, and ACTs and all that. And he just felt like this is all crazy and um, kind of went down the, the rabbit hole. And it's, it's, a, it's a great resource, that podcast as well. So those are, those are the things that come to mind uh, right away. That's for the parents to get down the rabbit hole. And um, how about the kids? What, what kind of uh, tools should they be looking at using for um, education? Yeah, you know, for kids, I feel like follow your interest as much as possible, like wherever that leads. And, and, and don't ever feel like, oh, well, I'm just a kid. Oh, well, I can't do this. So if you, you know, like a lot of kids are like, oh, they see YouTubers. It'd be really cool to be a YouTuber. Maybe someday when I'm better at this or when I have better equipment or whatever, nonsense. Just start. Like it's better to be a bad YouTuber than to try to become a good YouTuber, but never produce anything like start a YouTube channel, start playing around with video editing, start whatever your interests are. Don't be afraid to start it and don't be afraid to, to do it badly at first and to just stumble around. And like, you don't need to be great. You don't need, you know, an audience. You don't need to be the best at, at anything you're doing don't be afraid to try to experiment. You don't need to read an instruction manual or be given a lecture or a class before you can can dabble in things. Like just, you know, 
get, get out there, get your hands dirty. Don't be afraid to break things and, and embarrass yourself. I think that's the biggest thing. I mean, you know, even though my kids are, are unschooled and all this stuff, they still face that. Their biggest hurdle is fear of screwing up or looking bad. And, and that can hold them back from, from doing some stuff. And so trying to, um, trying to overcome that and just be playful and, and know that, um, whatever your interests are, you can follow them and you don't have to wait till you're an expert to, to put them into practice. And how do you see like the next five to 10 years playing out in the, in the, in the education space? Because we, we've got so many people now experience homeschooling. If just 1% decide to take their, their kids out of the public school uh, education system, that's yeah. a lot. Like, yeah, would- you know, what are we looking at? What's the landscape? How do you feel? Yeah, I think I think homeschooling. I'm very bullish on um, you know broadly and, and any sort of alternative to standard you know prison style factory uh, schooling. Um, I think is is a bull market, and there's a lot of different combinations of that. Some online classes, some co-ops, some you know schools that are two days a week with no homework or whatever. Just a lot of different combinations, and I think th- that's that's going to continue to grow. What I found interesting in the last five years is. Homeschooling went from when I was a kid, it was pretty much only religious people who did it. And then there sort of this this new group started to also do it for different reasons, kind of like kind of like hippies. So there's like the hippie, crunchy, you know, people that do it, and then the religious people that do it. And then a third group started to get more, you know, it's just to get larger and larger, which was um, parents who were just like really wanted their kids to be academically amazing and get into the best schools. And they realized that homeschooling was going to do it better for them. And then sometimes kids who were like, you know, kept getting kicked out of school because they misbehaved or whatever, that's sort of a small fraction. But I've noticed in the last five years, there's this emerging group of kind of people like yourself who were successful in business or even celebrities who are, you know, athletes or movie stars or entrepreneurs. They made a good bit of money. And then they started to say, okay, pursuing this, you know, being at the top of my game in my career is not the only thing anymore. I want to think about my family. I've got some kids and I have the resources to kind of do whatever education I want with them. What's the best? And they start researching and they realize school is not the best way. And so they have some kind of unschooling and it became, it went from like sort of lower income and religious people um, who are like weird and fringy to like almost a status symbol, like, oh, well, you can afford to, you know, travel the world and unschool your kids. And like, almost like a, if I could afford it, I would do it too. I've noticed that, that a lot more parents almost like aspire to homeschool, uh, but they don't feel like they can afford it. And with all of the online resources, with all the ability to do co-ops, people to to pool their resources together, the cost is coming down. Uh, Even if you do have both parents that work, you can do something that's a combination where your kids spend, you know, one day at a, at a house with a bunch of other kids that, you know, one of the other parents you're doing stuff with, and they, you know, spend one day, they take a class somewhere. There's so many alternatives emerging that I think that it's, it's kind of started as a bottom up thing. Um, but then this sort of, I don't know, like elites and people who are really interested in, in life hacking and making their kids life the best possible started doing it. And all the kind of middle-class people look up to that and say, I wish I could do that. And now that's becoming easier. So I see, I see it growing. I see it growing steadily. I don't think there's going to be, I don't think the public school system is going to, is going to die off easily or without a fight. I mean, the post office is basically completely irrelevant now, but it's still around and it still gets tons of money and it still harasses us with junk mail all the time. Um, you know, the queen of England is still around, even though she ostensibly has no power, it's a figurehead. Right. And I think public schools are probably not going to go away. 
um, but their relevance is going to continue to diminish. Uh, yeah, I agree. I'm completely bullish as well on uh, the future of education. I think we've got you know a brilliant um, opportunity now to to rebuild education to to suit more people, not just this cookie cutter system that we've we've had in place for too long. So. Yep. Um, Mm. All right. There's there's one question I always ask at uh, at the end of each show, and um, goes along the lines of this: If there was one person that you could implant your knowledge about, in your case, homeschooling and Bitcoin, straight into that person, who would then go and share that knowledge with their audience, an audience far wider than you could ever imagine, who would that person be, and why? Mm. That's a great question. Um... I don't know. Maybe maybe Joe Rogan. I don't. I don't really listen to his show much because it's like too long. Like three hours is a long. <laughs> is a long. I think there are maybe three or four episodes that I've listened to in entirety. Like I listened to the Elon Musk one because everyone wouldn't stop talking about it, and I enjoy them. They're just too long. But I, what I love about him is that he's he's kind of runs his thing very independently, and he kind of just does things his own way. And he has. I never believe the numbers of people watching, you know, t- television news anymore. I'm pretty sure that a Joe Rogan episode probably is the single episode of any show anywhere that has the largest reach. Anything other than like, a, you know, an episode of Westworld or something like that. I think he's got huge reach and I think he has reach among people who are disproportionately willing to buck the status quo a little bit. Now, I don't know a lot about his listeners in general, but I just know that like, if you're willing to, to, you know, listen to a guy ramble for three hours with somebody and ask him questions that are typically out of bounds and smoke weed on the show and, you know, whatever, there's probably something there that's pretty cool. So, um, you know, that, that might be one, uh, that's the first one that comes to mind again, since I don't really watch news and stuff, like I don't really know who's a figurehead that's got a huge reach, but he, he's the first one that came to mind. He's the, by he's hands down the, the, the most, uh, popular pick. I hope you're listening, Joe. One day, one day, Joe. Yeah, Joe, we'll, we'll, I'll, I'll come on your show. I'll tell you <laughs> tell you any stories you want to know, you know? <laughs> Man, that's awesome. Uh, I remember asking that question to um, Pat Ferenga on the, on the homeschool summit that we did last year and uh, about, you know, if there's one person you could choose to, um, to talk about homeschooling and raise awareness about homeschooling, who would that be? He just, like, he didn't miss a beat. He's like, Will Smith. I'm like, what? The Fresh Prince? He's like, yep. <laughs> now, apparently, he homeschools his kids. Like, you know, to, to your point, you know, yeah. it's, it, it, right? It's these celebrities and people that um, are questioning. Well, I guess, you know, like most people can turn around and say, yeah, well, he has the time and the money to question this kid. But it's still a huge leap of faith. Um, yeah. You know, like, uh, and he's very much in the in the public eye and has to face down uh, all of these accusations. So, uh, yeah, there you go, man. Um, cool. Well, how can people find you, Isaac? Because this has been an incredible, incredible interview and I, I know people are going to want to learn more about you. So what's the best way? Yeah. So uh, isaacmorehouse.com, uh, is my website with, you know, it's got my daily blog posts, podcasts I've done links to, uh, links to both of my companies, practice and crash. And, um, I'm also on Twitter at Isaac Morehouse. Um, and I'm, I'm, you know, pop into Twitter usually a couple times a day. So, Usually what happens after I do a show like this, I get like a little spike in Twitter followers. And then after a couple of days of reading my tweets, I lose about half of them. 
Because <laughs> they're like, oh, well, this guy also, whatever. He also tweets about sports sometimes or who knows what. So, Or I'm on the wrong side of some crypto faction or something like that. So fair warning, you know, you might, you might not agree with everything I tweet about. Well, it's, um, it's been a great interview. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on the show. Anything that you want to leave the listeners with um, to think about um, as a, like a, a parting thought? Uh, sure. Yeah, I guess I would say, you know, if, if, you're don't, if you don't feel like you're living free, uh, step back and just take stock. Like, okay, if you're unhappy, if you're sort of a slave to, to you know, what's going on in the news or whatever else, step back and, and ask yourself, is there a way that I can just live a little bit more free in my own life and start there? Uh, and that's been really, really helpful for me. So, Brilliant way to end it. Thank you. Thank you so much, Isaac. Have a great day. You too. Thank you again to Isaac. Thank you to everybody for listening. I hope you made it through this uh, this episode um, right to the end here. Fascinating, fascinating topic. I'm sure you'll all agree. And I'm sure you'll all, uh, you know, feel like the energy that Isaac has around these subjects of homeschooling, free markets, Bitcoin, separating money from state, separating education from state, really important topics and exciting times that we all get a chance to do this together now and experience this without, you know, some of the problems that we we have faced as homeschooling parents ourselves. Uh, the, the judgment for sure was, was a crippling one. Um, but you don't have to go through that now. We're all in the same boat. And that, that really excites me that we get to take a look at this all together and start thinking about, you know, what's wrong here? What needs changing and how can we change it? And how could we come together and start rebuilding this education system so it actually benefits the kids rather than, I mean, come on, like how many of our kids wake up each morning excited to go to school, right? It doesn't happen, does it? for the most part. And, you know, there's a great quote from Sir Ken Robinson, who says, you know, you ask a a young child to sit down and do low-grade clerical work for seven hours a day, don't be surprised if they get bored and start getting fidgety. And this is exactly what we're subjecting them to. It makes no sense. There's so much that could be different. And, you know, for them to be happier and for us to be teaching them in ways that suit individuals in mixed classes, mixed age groups. It doesn't have to be this like factory driven industrial cookie cutting system that we have right now in which everybody is trapped, not just the kids. The teachers are trapped in it as well because they have no wiggle room. They can't do what they want to do. They can't teach what they want to teach. They can't teach how they want to teach. They've just got to, they're getting whipped as hard as the kids. You know, who's it really serving? If it's not serving our kids, it's not serving us, it's not serving the teachers. Ask that question, guys. Who's Who's it really serving? And why has it been put into place this way? And how has it crept up on, you know, 100 to 150 years? Why has this system just crept up on us? Never really changed, just got harsher. And what are we teaching our kids for? We, we don't have, we have no idea now, less than ever, what the future is going to hold. Why are we teaching to the past in the ways that we always have? Why haven't we changed and adapted it's just crazy. And it's this top-down structure 
unelected bureaucrats that we, you know that comes up again you know that the the define uh, sorry the um, education minister of your country was appointed by someone you probably never even heard of him or her her name and then they appoint someone and then they appoint someone and then they appoint someone and down the chain it goes and we're right at the bottom and the kids are at this bottom of this top down structure that the people at the top are so dislocated from many of them probably never even worked in education right it's mad it's completely mad so i hope you enjoyed the episode and um start some conversations and um thanks for listening hope um i hope uh, you're well reach out to isaac um reach out to me on twitter go check out uh, um, isaac's companies uh praxis and crash doing some amazing work and uh thank you again for isaac for coming on have a great uh, have a great uh, evening or morning or day whatever time it is that you're listening to this thanks again bye bye